Welcome to the Caravan Podcast, a new venture of the Herbert and Jane Dwight Working Group on the Middle East and the Islamic World at the Hoover Institution. The Working Group publishes commentary on the Middle East and questions for U.S. foreign policy. I'm delighted that we are initiating a podcast series. This is the first installment with new podcasts to follow roughly every two weeks. I'm Russell Berman, co-director of the Working Group, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Cole Bunzel, currently a fellow at the Hoover Institution and editor of the blog Jihadika. We've published one of Cole's essays on the Working Group's website. Just go to www.hoover.org and choose the link to the research teams and click on the Middle East Group. Cole's essay addresses the Taliban and its negotiations with the Afghanistan government, which may bring this endless war to an end. But there's a lot more to the story. On February 29th last year, the U.S. and the Taliban signed the Agreement for Bringing Peace to Afghanistan, an important diplomatic step forward. But the agreement is only a plan, a key piece of which is resolving the future character of government in Afghanistan and the role of the Taliban in it. On September 12th, the Taliban and the Afghanistan government began negotiations in Qatar, a remarkable event, the outcome of which, however, is hard to predict. Are the Taliban really on the path to becoming a responsible member of a future Afghanistan government, breaking ties with al-Qaeda, as the agreement implies? Or is what we are witnessing a de facto Taliban victory over a U.S. that is eager to withdraw? We can gain some insight into these prospects by examining the perspectives from within the world of Sunni jihadism, including the partners as well as the competitors with the Taliban. Cole Bunzel studies this world and can help us understand the landscape. Cole, thanks for this interview and for your essay. To begin, please sketch out the terrain of Sunni jihadism. What are the key groups? Where are they located? And what are their political orientations? Well, hi, Russell. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me on for this inaugural episode of the podcast. It's a pleasure to be part of it and to be speaking about this essay you mentioned on jihadi perspectives of the ongoing uh, Afghan negotiations in the United States uh, deal with the Taliban from last February. So to break down the terrain of Sunni jihadism, in general, the jihadi world is divided into two camps, the camp of Al-Qaeda and the camp of the Islamic State, where you could say uh, the supporters and allies or the affiliates of Al-Qaeda and the supporters and affiliates of the Islamic State, because these two groups or these two camps really function more like coalitions or, or loose networks than they do like centrally managed organizations. And both of these camps generally aspire to the same end, which is, of course, toppling local rulers, implementing Islamic law and establishing a global caliphate. But they do disagree on ideology and approach, and they have fought each other. They've come to blows on, on numerous occasions, and they really truly do uh, hate each other. And that can't be emphasized enough. This is uh, definitely a bipolar world with very little crossover. Al-Qaeda accuses the Islamic State of ideological extremism, of excessive violence, of hegemonic behavior, while the Islamic State accuses Al-Qaeda of being theologically 
lacks of essentially being overly tolerant of uh, non-Salafi Islamic sects, sects that do not adhere to their pristine version of Islam. Al-Qaeda is, of course, the older of these two groups. It was founded in the 1980s, the late 1980s in Pakistan, and it has a political ideology which is predicated above all on attacking the United States with the goal of replacing local governments, driving the U.S. from the region, and ultimately uh, creating an Islamic state. Its leadership today appears to be based primarily in Afghanistan and Pakistan with a couple leaders in Iran. Uh, but most of the work uh, done today in the name of Al-Qaeda is carried out by its affiliates, its local partners in various regions around the world, uh, particularly in Yemen, Somalia, North Africa, uh, and in the, the region known as the Sahel, which includes Mali. Um, the Islamic State is the younger of these two groups. It started off as as an affiliate of Al-Qaeda, as Al-Qaeda's uh, affiliate in, in Iraq. It was founded by Abu Musa al-Zarqawi as, um, as the branch Al-Qaeda in Iraq, but it morphed into the Islamic State of Iraq, and since then it went in its own direction. And it represents, as I mentioned before, a more, a more hardline and a more puritanical uh, version of jihadism, of jihadi ideology. It's, of course, uh, distinguished by its claim to be the restored Islamic caliphate, global unitary state that brooks no opposition to its putative rule around the world. Back in 2014, when it made this caliphate declaration, it actually um, essentially uh, said publicly that no other jihadi groups uh, have any legitimacy, that they all have to dissolve themselves and pledge their bayah or their loyalty, their allegiance to the Islamic State Caliph, uh, which is essentially a direct challenge to Al-Qaeda's uh, Al being. So from that moment forward, there have been very bad relations between those two groups. The, the leadership of the Islamic State, or ISIS as a lot of us call it, uh, is based in, in Iraq, perhaps a little bit in Syria, and yet that region of Iraq, Syria, continues to be the center of its operations, though it also has a lot of operations in its its affiliates that it calls its provinces, uh, particularly the provinces in Nigeria, in the Sahel, Afghanistan, uh, the Sinai, among others. Um, an important exception, however, to this bipolar picture of the jihadi terrain, as we're sketching it, is a group in Syria called Hayat Tahrir Asham, or HTS, which is a group that began as Al-Qaeda's affiliate in Syria, but has since tried to rebrand itself as more of a mainstream Islamist group and to kind of exit the jihadi fold. And in that process, it, it went about renouncing ties with Al-Qaeda in 2016-2017. It didn't have the the approval of the Al-Qaeda leader, Ayman al-Zawahiri, to do so. And that created this lasting rift between Al-Qaeda and HTS that is uh, omnipresent in the, the online world of jihadism that, that I follow. Al-Qaeda supporters uh, truly despise and hate uh, HTS. They see it as a group that has uh, deviated from the true jihadi path. It's renounced jihadi ideology. It's basically become something much more like the Muslim Brotherhood. It's ceased to uh, to fight the Assad regime. It rules in a territory known as Idlib province in northwest Syria, which is about the size of Delaware. Um, so for Al-Qaeda supporters, this is a deviant group um, in a way that the Islamic State is a deviant group having left Al-Qaeda and gone in a more radical direction from their perspective, from Al-Qaeda's perspective. Uh, HTS is a group that left Al-Qaeda and went in a more moderate direction. So uh, in this interpretation, you have this kind of tripolar 
state of affairs. Um, but then when you bring in the Taliban, things got even, even more complicated because the Taliban has a relationship with Al Qaeda, but it doesn't uh, map neatly onto, to the jihadi landscape. So the Taliban, which was founded in 1994 and ruled in Afghanistan, of course, from 1996 to 2001, um, is an Afghan Islamist movement. And its main focus, the main focus of, of its activities is Afghanistan on reestablishing authority in Afghanistan and reestablishing its rule, uh, instituting Islamic law as they understand it. Um, and unlike the global jihadis, they don't have any declared ambitions beyond Afghanistan. But as I mentioned, they do have a longstanding relationship with the global jihadis and, and with Al Qaeda in particular. Of course, the Taliban harbored al-Qaeda before 9-11, and even though the Taliban leadership uh, doesn't appear to have approved of or authorized the 9-11 attacks, they did refuse to hand over Osama bin Laden after 9-11. And since then, the, the ties between al-Qaeda and the Taliban have actually grown uh, closer. And al-Qaeda has fought alongside the Taliban. Uh, it's been part of its insurgency against the Afghan security forces and the United States. Um, so that relationship has has, has grown, has grown stronger. Um, and another odd feature of this is that Al Qaeda beginning in, in 2014 has started to portray the, the leadership of the Taliban as its supreme leadership to say that, um, the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, which is the official name of the Taliban is actually the kind of, um, it's, it's, uh, it, it's country that it belongs to. And they portray themselves, that is Al Qaeda portrays itself as soldiers fighting in the army of the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. It's a theme that they touch upon very, very frequently in their propaganda. Uh, this, uh, it's a theme that's mentioned by Ayman Zawahiri, the leader of Al Qaeda in particular, um, all the time. Uh, so he says that I have given Bayah or the oath of allegiance to the leader of the Taliban. Um, he started doing that when the leader of the Taliban was Mullah Omar, um, or he was actually dead at the time, but he didn't know. Uh, the next leader of the Taliban actually publicly accepted and acknowledged the Bayah of Zawahiri and said, thank you, Dr. Zawahiri, for, for your Bayah. Um, the current leader, uh, who's been in power since 2016, is a man named Haybatullah Ahunzadeh, actually hasn't publicly acknowledged this and hasn't publicly even acknowledged this relationship with Al-Qaeda. And in fact, a lot of the uh, Taliban spokespersons that you'll see quoted in the New York Times and other publications, they reject the idea that Al-Qaeda even has a presence in Afghanistan, uh, which is complete nonsense because as anyone who, who reads the news and follows this region of the world knows uh, the United States and its Afghan partners continue to kill Al-Qaeda members and leaders on Afghan soil. Um, and the commander of CENTCOM uh, last year actually said that the leader of Al-Qaeda Ayman Zawahiri is based in Eastern Afghanistan in a Taliban controlled area. So, so that's sort of the lay of the land and sets up the, what we have going on with these negotiations. Okay. Thank you. That's a complicated landscape. Uh, but if I could zoom out for a moment, let's just remember that the United States has been involved in a war in support of the Afghan government against insurgency, primarily the Taliban. Taliban are now in negotiations with the Afghan government and the other players in the field of Sunni um, jihadism are, are watching and evaluating the Taliban. You've described a tripolar world with Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and HTS. How does each of those alternative players view 
Taliban's negotiations. Okay, so I'll start with with the Islamic State, um, which, well, whose view of these negotiations and this deal is is informed by the way that they view the Taliban. So for the Islamic State, which I to um, as I said before, has this very, very puritanical approach to Islam. The Taliban are not even Muslims. They are apostates, people who have abandoned Islam because they are, in in the way that the Islamic State talks about them, they are heretics, um, they promote Sufism, they interpret God's attributes metaphorically because they're not good Salafi Muslims for all of these reasons. And so for the Islamic State, um, the the Taliban is actually showing its its true colors, um, and that is to say that its genuine willingness to enter into negotiations with the United States and with the Afghan government, because for as the Islamic State sees it, the the Taliban really isn't even an Islamic movement, so it's really all about power, and it's happy to enter into a sort of power sharing uh, agreement. Um, so the way they look at it is that the agreement is also. Um, it's evidence of the Taliban's religious deviation, and it's a kind of consummation of what they see as a pre-existing uh, deal that the Taliban already has with the United States. Um, because in, in some cases um, recently, the United States has functioned as the Taliban's air force in, in clashes between the Islamic State and the Taliban. Uh, what about the theological differences? Uh, what is the relationship to the Shia? How did the Taliban view the Shia? How does ISIS view the Shia in Afghanistan? Yeah, so the Shia are about uh, 10%, we believe, of Afghanistan's population. And the Taliban today, at least, doesn't um, seem to be in, interested in, in in persecuting the Shia. Uh, they, they're essentially much more tolerant of the Shia than than ISIS, than the Islamic State. So for the Islamic State, the Shia are heretics. They ought to be killed. And for the Taliban who want to rule Afghanistan, well, you know, they're, they're heterodox Muslims, but we're not going to persecute and kill them. That's kind of the way they look at it. So is it fair to say that for ISIS, uh, the Taliban are insufficiently Islamist? Uh, yes. I mean, it's so insufficiently Islamist or Muslim uh, to you know, jettison them from the faith entirely. <laughs> uh, what? Okay. So, what, what about what? What about Al Qaeda? How does how does it position itself in this um, controversy between uh, the Islamic State and uh, the Taliban? So, Al Qaeda. Um, boy, it gets complicated. Um, Al Qaeda, we should return. Let me just return to the way that they, um, they're approaching the, or perceiving and processing these negotiations with, uh, with, with the Taliban and the Afghan government. So when, when the deal was announced between the United States and, uh, and the Taliban back in February, 20, uh, 2020, um, you have to remember that the deal basically said that 5,000 Taliban prisoners are going to be freed and that the United States is going to fully withdraw from Afghanistan in 14 months. Uh, so the way that Al-Qaeda portrayed this is this is a great victory, a great victory for the Taliban, a great victory for jihad. It's a, it's a, it's a case study and perseverance and, and commitment to, to, to faith and things like this. And so they celebrated this and 
and they they have continued to to hail the agreement as a good thing. The oddity, of course, is that the agreement says that the Taliban will not host Al Qaeda and they will not allow Al Qaeda to use Afghan soil to threaten the uh, to threaten the United States and U.S. interests. Um, that's odd because threatening the United States and U.S. interests is really what Al Qaeda is all about. So if it's supreme overlords and the Taliban are prohibiting to do what they say is their raison d'etre, then it just creates a very odd, uh, odd picture. It's an odd picture indeed. Do you think this has implications for the future of Al Qaeda Taliban relations? Uh, I think it could, um, but it's it's a rather uncertain um, environment that we're that we're in right now. So the leader of the commander of CENTCOM that I mentioned before, he said uh, in remarks, I believe that were in in mid twenty twenty, that it was quote unquote not clear to him what the future of the Taliban's approach to Al Qaeda would be. Um, the jihadi ideologues who I follow have similarly said that it's not clear to them uh, how these negotiations are going to affect uh, the relationship between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. Um, and they're not entirely optimistic, but they're also, uh, they're not entirely pessimistic. Uh, so it, w- the way that I think about it is that we've, by entering into these negotiations and, and, to, and agreeing, making this deal with the United States, the Taliban has agreed to make its relationship with Al-Qaeda more ambiguous. Um, whereas they used to basically say we support Al Qaeda, now they're going to put their arms up in the air and say, "Oh, there's no Al Qaeda here, nothing to worry about." Um, now, what in 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 real terms does that mean? Does it mean that the Taliban might actually um, work to restrain Al Qaeda in their operations and their ability to uh, to threaten the United States on its on its territory? It's very possible because I mean, if you think about it from the, the Taliban's perspective, the United States is there because uh, Al Qaeda did 9/11, and the Taliban wasn't involved in planning 9/11, and it doesn't seem like the leadership of the Taliban would have approved of it in the first place. So um, there's no good reason for them to be uh, loyal to to the point of suicide to Al Qaeda. Um, at the same time, it does seem like there are a lot of factions in the Taliban that really are loyal to Al Qaeda. And if the Taliban wants to keep its coalition together, it has to satisfy both sides. And where is HTS in all of this? How does HTS view the negotiations? How does it view the Taliban's participation in these negotiations? Yeah, so HTS, somewhat like Al Qaeda, has hailed these negotiations as a great uh, victory for jihad and and for the Taliban. But unlike Al-Qaeda, their their focus is on saying that, look, this is a great lesson in, um, in, in how it's important for a jihadi organization to engage the international community, to stay the course, to win international recognition and legitimacy. And so they see this as, um, as something that they can aspire to themselves. If they kind of stay the course and they continue, um, to, to, no, to give no quarter to the Assad regime and to Russia, um, that they might be able to win international acceptance in a similar way. So it sounds to me like HTS and Al-Qaeda have similar evaluations of the negotiations. Yes, they do. But the, the key difference is that Al-Qaeda... Um, is that the Taliban has not renounced uh, its relationship with Al Qaeda, whereas HTS has renounced its relationship with Al Qaeda. So it's, it creates a, uh, a messy kind of picture. And the agreement uh, uh, insists that uh, the Taliban will 
distance itself from Al-Qaeda, correct? So there is no statement in the agreement uh, to the effect that uh, the Taliban will, you know, denounce or condemn Al-Qaeda or have, you know, no nego- no relationship whatsoever. Um, what it says very clearly is that Al-Qaeda will be prohibited by the Taliban from using Afghan soil to threaten uh, the United States and that Al-Qaeda will not be hosted. Um, the problem with this, in my opinion, among many other problems with the deal, is that the the Taliban already claims that there is no Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan in Afghanistan. So it's essentially making an empty promise because it's, it's saying, Oh, well, Al Qaeda isn't here. And we're going to promise that they, they, they won't be here. Um, now in actual fact, there are lots of Al Qaeda members uh, living and working on Af- in Afghanistan. Um, and it does appear that Al Qaeda, um, is being harbored to some extent and the UN, uh, is reported and this information comes from um, unspecified uh, UN member states. So it's hard to know if this information is any good, but in any event, uh, UN reporting has, has it that, uh, that the Taliban have given assurances to Al Qaeda leadership that they won't be, that they won't be threatened, um, that nothing will really come of this agreement that will hurt um, or jeopardize uh, their position in Afghanistan. So there are a lot of mixed signals here. In recent um, months, President Trump seemed to be pushing for an accelerated withdrawal from Afghanistan. Uh, How that will play out now as we move into a new administration is unclear. But was there jihadi commentary on the Trump aspiration for a rapid withdrawal? No, I personally haven't haven't seen the jihadis' comments on on Trump's uh, approach to Afghanistan being um, particularly different from previous administrations, particularly the Obama administration. I think from their point of view, um, <clears throat> both of these administrations have wanted to get out of Afghanistan, and what the way that they they perceive it uh, playing out is that the United States is is just being exhausted there somewhat like the Russians were exhausted. It didn't really matter who was in charge then. Was it Brezhnev or Gorbachev? It just happened that the United States uh, is being exhausted and the jihadis are winning. That's sort of the way that they're talking about it. And what's your view of things, especially as we move into a new administration? Do you have uh, expectations for the Biden administration in Afghanistan? Well, the Biden administration hasn't to my knowledge, said uh, officially what its position is on the Doha agreement from February 2020 with the Taliban. Um, if the Biden administration is to stick to the the letter of the agreement, then the United States has to withdraw all forces from Afghanistan uh, by May 2021, which is you know coming up. It's in five months, so uh, that's a really really big decision that has to be made. Uh, Biden Biden's positions in the past. Um, would seem to indicate that he would prefer to leave some sort of residual counterterrorism force in Afghanistan. That would also be my preference. I'm not sure that this deal um, is going to to kind of produce any kind of outcome uh, that is acceptable um, to either Afghanistan or the United States. Um, I mean, the the way that a lot of uh, optimistic jihadis that I follow online. Um, look at the deal is that, oh, good, 14 months. All the Taliban has to do is negotiate for a few months with, with, with these heretics in the Afghan government, and, uh, and then the United States will withdraw and the Taliban can take over the country again. Um, I think that that's 
probably a likely outcome if the United States really withdraws. So um, it will be interesting to see what happens. But if the United States doesn't withdraw by May, if President-elect Biden chooses to pursue the position you've attributed to him of keeping a residual force there, then it's plausible for the Taliban to say that the United States has not lived up to its promise. Well, absolutely. Yeah, that's what the deal says. Um, Of course, the deal is not a treaty, just like the JCPOA was not a treaty. And so it's, you know, up to uh, in the next administration to decide whether it is going to agree uh, to commit to that agreement. Yeah. Well, I guess there's a lot of um, variables here. There's uh, the theological political judgments of the various movements. There's their practice, what they really do on the ground. And there's the ambiguity of shifting policy in Washington. Cole, thanks so much for this uh, insight into the uh, world of Sunni jihadism in, uh, in, in Afghanistan. That does it for this first episode of the Caravan Podcast. We're hoping to have episodes every other week or so, hosted by myself or by Cole. The next episode will be released in the next few weeks. Uh, We'll have a discussion of public opinion polling in the Middle East, and then by the end of the month, a discussion with David Rondell on Saudi Arabia and U.S. policy. David is a former diplomat with years of experience in the kingdom and the author of the new book, Vision or Mirage, Saudi Arabia at the Crossroads. You won't want to miss our further podcasts. Please subscribe to us and stay tuned. Thank you. podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.